Good morning. My name is uh, Joseph Anderson. I am a pastoral apprentice at Parkwood Baptist Church, and it is my pleasure and joy to be here with you all this morning. Man, I was just, I was blessed by that worship, brother. Is it not a joy to know that Jesus loves us? That Jesus loves me, that we could not run from his presence, brothers and sisters. That truth is overwhelming. So this morning, we will be addressing two major passages of scripture. We will be in Matthew 22, 34 through 40. And we will also be in 1 John 4, 7 through 17. So before I start, I want to I want to begin with kind of a question, scenario, story. I just gonna, I want to take you guys up somewhere with me. Y'all, y'all willing to go on a trip with me? Excellent. Okay. So how many of you have ever traveled for work? A couple of you guys. Okay. So for all of you who have never traveled for work, let me just tell you, as someone who has, it's not that glamorous. Okay. So let's pretend that we all work in corporate America. Right? We all travel for work, and, and it's Friday. Yeah, it's 3.30, right? And we are daydreaming about the leisure we are going to have this weekend, right? And then our boss walks in. And, and for those of you who have worked in corporate America, it's, it's just really a never good sign. When, you're, when your boss walks in your office, and imagine he said to you, hey, I need you to go ahead and head to the airport. We're going to need you to be in Alaska this weekend. There goes your leisurely weekend right out the window. And as he walks out, and you're exercising self-control so you don't throw the stapler at the back of his head, he says something that he never really said before. He says, you should probably call your family. So you're like, that's strange. It's also a little intrusive, but you call. And in between the excitement and screams, your spouse tells you that there is a cruise leaving from Alaska and that they are going with you. Now, admittedly, this scenario is pretty strange, right? And you guys are looking at me like, where is he going with this? I have a purpose, all right? And so you get off the phone, and if you're anything like me, you're like, why on earth would my boss send me to Alaska And more importantly, who's paying for it? So you walk to your boss's office, and you're like, hey, man, uh, I appreciate your kindness and sending us on a cruise, but I have not been saving for a vacation. He looks at you, and he says, it's all paid for. All you have to do is go and meet your family there. So why do I tell that story? I tell that story because I believe that we often treat loving God, loving others, and going with the gospel like a work trip, right? We, we have the command, but we often don't have the motivation. See, our boss here in this scenario has given us everything that we need to go to Alaska and be on this crew with our family. He has given us a command to go. Right? Go. He, 
He didn't really give us an option. He has given us motivation to go. Our family will be there. It will be a vacation. And he has enabled us to go. So why, why do we treat the commands of God, especially the command to go, the command to love him, and the command to love others as an obligation? Why do we treat it as something that inconveniences us? I believe there are three reasons. I believe we underestimate the one who gives the command. I believe we neglect the motivation for going and loving. And I believe that we forget that we have been enabled and empowered. So the main idea of my sermon today is this. Those who are compelled by the command, motivated by the cross, and enabled by the Spirit, love God and love others by going with the gospel. This morning, we will unpack the command from Matthew 22 through 34 through 40, excuse me. And we will also dive into 1 John to see our motivation and our empowering. So, as we begin with the command, would you stand for me for the reading of God's word? We will start in Matthew 22, 34 through 40. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest command in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commands depend all the laws and the prophets. Let me pray. (laughs) Father, you know how desperately I need you. I pray that you would make the truths of your word seem all the more glorious to me this morning now as I stand before your people and that you would convey the glories of these truths to your people that they may be impacted to go with the gospel, that we may be impacted to love you and know you and seek you. We say that you are good. Oh God. We say that you are faithful and we say that unless you show up this morning, we are wasting our time. So would you be exalted in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we see right away this massive truth. The greatest commandment in all of Scripture is that we love God and love others. So get this, ladies and gentlemen, there is a definitive, most important command. Jesus is clear. Love God and love others. And you're like, okay, right? That may not seem like a big deal, but let me paint a little bit of background for us because the context is pretty revealing. In the Old Testament, there were 613 commands. They were distinguished between positive and negative, 248 do's and 365 don'ts. And we see these three groups in Matthew 22, 
approach Jesus attempting to get him to stumble, attempting to get him to say something that he will regret. And so the first group are the disciples of the Pharisees. And they ask a question about taxes, seeking to trip him up, but Jesus sees directly through it. Then come the Sadducees, and they fail miserably. They ask Jesus some petty question about the resurrection, and they were exposed for their lack of knowledge and their mishandling of the scriptures. So the Pharisees, the experts in the law, decide that they will take their opportunity. And so... These men, what you must understand about the Pharisees is that these men would have listed out all 613 of the laws. And it is very likely that they would have debated at great length which is most important. And so they they come to Jesus with this confidence. They have been speaking about this. They know the laws and they know a couple of things about Jesus also. They know that he is not formally educated, and they also know that he is from Nazareth. And so they are sure that they have finally devised a question that will stump this homeless carpenter street preacher. Yet Jesus produces an answer so profound that Mark's gospel records that the man who devised the scheme forgot his purpose and agreed with Jesus. Jesus says, love God and love others, and he goes, yes, that is correct. Because Jesus spoke with such assurity and such authority. Then he said this, that every command hangs on these. So ladies and gentlemen, the question I want to pose to us today is this. Does our love for our neighbor prove our love for God? I have been convicted as I study the scripture all week. I see that I am far more like the Pharisees than I want to admit. I love to discuss God's word. I love to debate his law, but I am ashamed to admit that I am often too busy to even acknowledge my neighbor, let alone love him as myself. But Jesus says that this is the number one most important command. Love me, and if you love me, you will love others. So let me start with a couple observations about the text. First, the command to love God and neighbor is exactly that. It is a command. This is not a suggestion. We see that Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5. In Deuteronomy 6.5, God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And with all your might. And why? Why does he say we must love the Lord our God? Verse 13 gives us the explanation. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name shall you swear. You shall not go after other gods. The other gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you. And you be destroyed from the face of the earth. So see clearly, brothers and sisters, that the motivation to love God is because God said so. Because the one who is enthralled in glory has commanded it. And because those who do not love God are destined for wrath. We see it here in the text. 
And brothers and sisters, this is not a command from a, in, from a God who is unconfident or unsure of himself. Our God is worthy of our love. He is supremely lovely. He is altogether worthy, and he is completely holy of all of our hearts, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. So let us first establish that this is not God begging for our love. This is him commanding it. Love God. It is the most important commandment. And we see that the second commandment has the exact same motivation. Here Jesus quotes Leviticus 19.18. He says, you shall not take vengeance on your, or bear a grudge against the son of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And why does he say, I am the Lord here? Why is that just randomly there? Verse 14 helps us see why it's there. In verse 14, he says, you shall not do what is evil in my sight, but you shall fear me. Why? Because I am the Lord. So our motivation to love God and others is motivated by a command to do so. It is motivated by our fear of God. And this gives us a little insight into what Paul was saying last week. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So may I argue that a large part of Paul's motivation to love others through persuasion is the command. And see this, Paul does not separate the command to love others and love God. This is precisely what Jesus is addressing here. Paul grasped the inseparable nature of love for God and love for neighbor. And so he persuades and loves others, and it is fueled by his love for God and God's love for him. Therefore, he says in verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. So I ask again, brothers and sisters, does our love for others prove our love for God? Does it show our fear and reverence for the command of Jesus? Honestly, ponder that. I know that when I look at my life, I am convicted at how much growth needs to take place. Jesus is bringing our issue of disobedience back to the core. Why are we not compelled to love our neighbor in the same way Paul was? Why are we not compelled to go with the gospel? Answer is frightening. But truthfully, I think we struggle to love God. Love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my might, all my mind. I have not kept the whole of this commandment for five seconds. And you see, Jesus is doing something here. There is a fundamental difference in understanding the command and obeying it. Obedience requires fear and reverence. Get this, guys. The Jewish leaders who Jesus gave this command to, they would have quoted Deuteronomy 6.5 twice a day. They would have prayed it. They knew the command. I think the reason that Jesus gives two commands here instead of one It's because it is much harder to be subjective about whether we love others. 
out of their love for God, the Jewish leaders killed their neighbor. And their neighbor happened to be God. If only they would have stopped and thought, oh, the second command. Right? So see this. Jesus is drawing our attention to the inseparable nature of the two commandments. We cannot love God and despise our neighbor. When we truly love God, brothers and sisters, we are overwhelmed by a desire to please him, and our love for him overflows naturally to others. Consequently, when we struggle to love God, the affections of our heart are often divided when the hope of our soul is placed elsewhere, and when our minds drift from the glorious realities of his throne and his cross, we struggle to love others. It is in this context that I pose the question, why do we struggle so with evangelism? Why do we struggle to love our neighbor in the way that we want to be loved? Think about it. Knowing what we know about God Knowing what we know about eternity, knowing what we know about hell, if we were lost, what would be the number one way we desire for our neighbors to love us? If we have been saved from the wrath of God and exposed to his love, should we not share it? We read last week that Paul said, the love of Christ controls me, so I plead with others, be reconciled to God. Are we impacted by the love of Christ? What motivates us to love in a manner that is pleasing to God? What enables us to love people from an overflow of our love from God? It is with these questions at the forefront of our minds that we will transition to 1 John. John is heavenly influenced by the command as he pens chapter 4 of his first epistle. His address to us is poignant. We love because he loves. And our love is motivated by the cross and enabled by the Spirit. So we go to 1 John 4, verses 7 through 17, and we will stop at verse 12 and then pick up again. It says this, Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is the love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God has sent his only son into the world so that he might live through, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. We love one another. God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So before we dive in, I need to briefly address this phrase, one another. Right? Because why would somebody use a passage about the church loving the church to argue for evangelism? A couple of reasons. The first is that though John is speaking here primarily about the church loving the church, 
he is not doing so exclusively. Listen to this quote from Danny Aiken. John's exhortation is for Christians to love Christians, although the importance of Christians loving non-Christians is not to be excluded in his statement. So how do we come to this conclusion? Well, there's Matthew 5.43 where Jesus says, You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So here, Jesus is shifting a paradigm. We don't just get to love our brothers. We love our neighbor. And who is our neighbor? Jesus seems to say that your enemy is your neighbor. This is the purpose of this parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus openly confronts Jewish norms. These Samaritans you hate? Yes, they're your neighbor also. So, Jesus sets a precedent that the command to love can no longer be limited. Point number two, and possibly more compelling. Jesus says that the reason we love each other is for the purpose of evangelism. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because of John 17, 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus said that our unity Our love for each other, that which unites us, is so the world will know and believe that Jesus was sent by God. So, I use this passage to argue for evangelism for those reasons. So, let's dive into the passage. It says in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever has been born of God knows God, and anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So right away, John is seemingly here drawing from Jesus' words. Love one another, right? Love your neighbor. Why? Because God is love. The sentence structure, so beloved, can literally be phrased like this. So, those loved by God, love. Because whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And this is not saying that love is some sort of prerequisite. It is not one's ability to love that causes the new birth. But instead, John is insisting that the true knowledge of God is that which generates and renews love in us. We become new creatures. We are conformed to the image of God, which is described here as love. And so we love because God has removed our heart of stone and given us hearts of flesh. We love because we are new creations in Christ, and we love as an evidence that we know and love God. And watch how he doubles down in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So we see that the one who bears no evidence of knowing God indeed does not know him. And the 
primary evidence in this passage John is pointing to is love. So John is standing firmly on the foundation that Jesus has laid. To know the love of God is to be compelled by it. To know the love of God is to manifest it. Brothers and sisters, when we fail to love each other, when we fail to love our neighbor, we fail to manifest the very nature of him we claim to be a part of. So watch what John does. In verse 9, he says, In this is love. And this is the love of God. And this the love of God was manifested among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So John is challenging us. John is demanding that we lose this abstract, warm, fuzzy definition of love. The manifestation of God's love among us was the cross. And this has implications for our lives. How are we going and dying to ourselves that we may love others? If we're honest with ourselves, right, let's, let's just be honest. Why don't we evangelize? Because it's hard. Because it's inconvenient. Because building a relationship with someone that you don't particularly like is draining. And because, if we're honest, we all hate rejection. So how does John deal with that? He points to the cross. He launches into the primary reason that we should love God without even taking a breath. And get this. Our love for people here is complementary. It is almost secondary. He is primarily laying a foundation for our motivation to love God. We see verse 10, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. He sent his one and only son to die on our behalf. God has lavishly poured out his love on us. And so the implications of verse 10 is that, yes, we love God as he commanded us to, but only because he first loved us. We could never love God as long as we were alienated and enemies. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive. Together with Christ, this is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And this leads John to this conclusion. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought so to love one another. Or it could be said like this. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love the lost. We also ought to love the broken and the hurting. So we see the cross as our motivation to love, and those who love God love others. 
Does the love of Christ compel and control us? See, Paul understands something about the love of Christ that drove him toward people. Right? We have already quoted 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. Notice that Paul does not say one has died for you. Therefore, you have died. What does he say? One has died for all, all who have been called for his purposes according to his will. So Christ did not just die for you, and that's what Paul understood, that he died for a people, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation for his own possession. Why? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Therefore, Paul responds, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. So hear me when I say we love people because we love God. Because we love God. This is about the glory of the one who saved our souls. So because of our love for God, we go and we love others. That the lost may know the grace of God and that they might be filled and made alive to the glory of his grace. This is Ephesians 2.7. The reason that he rose us and seated us with him is so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters, we go for the glory of God. We love others because we love him. And then John concludes with this thought. This is how it all manifests. This is how it all comes together. This is how it works. He says... No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So he starts with this seemingly dilemma. No one has ever seen God. And if no one has seen God, how will they know him? The answer is breathtaking. Though the lost cannot see God, they can see us. And if I love you and you love me and we love them, they can see that. And and when that happens, God is in us. So don't miss this. When we love, God's love is perfected in us, meaning it accomplishes its purpose. Namely, that men and women who do not know him come to know him. Listen to this quote by James Boyce. The love of God displayed in his people is the strongest apologetic that God has in the world. When his love is planted in their hearts and he himself best dwells within them, his love is perfected. So just as we must be holy as he is holy, and as we must be merciful as he is merciful, We must love because he is love. John cuts right to the core of the issue. When we don't love others, we don't love God. We must examine our hearts here, brothers and sisters. 
Do we honestly see the hallowing of his name as primary in our lives? Are we focused on the building of his kingdom or of ours? In a very real way, our flesh does not desire to love God. Like, naturally, in our sin, we have a propensity to hate him. Our deeply rooted desire for comfort and ease, our propensity towards selfishness and sin, overtly object to his commands and even to his existence. Even the great motivation of the cross is often not enough to coax our obedience. Even now, brothers and sisters, I feel my sinfulness and my struggle. I say with Paul in Romans 7, what a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But you know how Romans 8 starts? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Ultimately, we love God and love others not because of the command, though we should. Not even because of the motivation of the cross with all its, sufficiently, with all its sufficiencies. Ultimately, we love God because he has enabled us to by his spirit. And we see this in verse 13. It says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father, oh, excuse me, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses the, that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love of God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is also, are we in the world. So also are we in the world. So brothers and sisters, feel the depth of assurance in verses 13 and 14. How do we know that we abide in him? How do we know that we are in Christ? He has given us his spirit. Verse 13 says that we may know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And this receiving of the spirit has multiple implications for our lives. First, because we have the spirit, we have seen. It is because I have been indwelt by the Spirit of God that I see God. We all know the song. Amazing grace, how sweet the song that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind. But now I see. And God has done that. I was once lost but he has opened my eyes to see the beauty of God and the glory of the cross. And not only did he heal our eyes, he has also loosed 
our tongues. Those who have seen testify. It does not just say that because we have the spirit we have seen. It says we have seen and testify. Our seeing and our speaking accomplish the purposes of God. In our lives, we are often aware of how the spirit helps us to hear and see God, but we often neglect evangelism. And when we do so, we suppress a primary function of the, of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we must not forget Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We have been enabled by the Spirit to love our neighbor and go with the gospel. <coughs> Excuse me. We must go. We have been commanded and motivated and equipped to do so, and we have the Spirit. And with the Spirit comes power. And there is also a second application of the Spirit. We are sealed by him. Because he has given us the spirit, we have assurance of his love for us. We see it in verse 16. Because of the spirit, we know and believe the love God has for us. Guys, because of the spirit, we know and believe the love that God has for us. He says, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So what is John getting at here? It seems to me that to keep with the context, he may have said, we have God and his spirit, and whoever abides in the spirit abides in God. But instead, he returns to his theme of earlier. God is love. Why? Because it is by the Spirit that we come to know the love of God. Or more succinctly, it is by the Spirit that we come to know God. So there is a correlation between knowing that we are loved and abiding in love. And the correlation is foundational. So Christian, the Spirit's true revelation of God is always accompanied by the knowledge of his love for us. This is why Paul prays the way he does in Ephesians 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend. So, we need to comprehend something. And it is the Spirit who strengthens us to do it. What is it that we need to comprehend? So that you may comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. By the power of the Spirit, we are strengthened in our inner being to comprehend how massive God's love is for us. 
Because we know by the power of the Spirit, the love of God, we abide in Him. And when this happens, when this abiding love is happening in us, John says that love is perfected with us. We are confident that we have been sealed for the day of judgment because his love is perfected in us and we don't fear that day any longer. And all of this comes from verse 17. As he is, so also are we in this world. Who is God? John says, God is love. So here's my question to us this morning. Does the way we love by going with the gospel affirm our love for God? Does the way we love come from an overflow of how loved we are? If we love God, brothers and sisters, we must love others. And in order to love others, we must be compelled by the love of God. Hear me. My charge to you this morning is not pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It is not grit your teeth and take the gospel to your neighbors. Do we believe, verse 40 of Matthew 22, do we believe that the command to take the gospel to the ends of the earth hangs on whether or not we love God and love others? If we did, I believe in our personal lives, we'd spend less time with the TV and more time in our word. I believe in our communities, we'd be less consumed with leisure and more concerned for our neighbor. I believe in our churches, we'd spend less time planning and more time praying. So here's my charge to us this morning. Seek God. We must collectively get on our faces before him. Let us plead with him for forgiveness for our indifference. We must repent for making the gospel about us. Let us as his people return to our first love. Knowing the fear of the Lord, let us go. We must live lives controlled by the love of Christ. and We must lay down our lives and take up our cross. We must plead with the Lord to save our souls and let us orient our lives in a way that helps bring about the saving of the souls of others. Will we go? Will we love God in this way? The command is compelling. The motivation is great. And the power is ours in Christ Jesus. Let us go. I will pray to this end. Father, I confess that there is not much impressive about my words, my thoughts, is nothing that I can contribute apart from you. Father, it is my prayer that you would take your word 
and plant it deeply in our hearts and compel us by your perfect love to go to our neighbors for your glory. God, pack our hearts and be exalted among us as your people. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.